Good morning. Good to see everybody today. Over the last few months, we've been making our way through some of the teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Of course, we haven't, uh, we haven't come close to covering everything, just a few of the highlights. And we're swiftly approaching the end of both this journey and Jesus' earthly ministry. In a few weeks for us, and in just two days for Jesus, it will be the Passover. And then the crucifixion. And then the resurrection. Jesus has very little time left to teach his disciples as he, he fills this time with parables, stories that stick in the minds of his listeners and they cement the lessons that he taught. And towards the end, he adds in one story that doesn't really feel like a parable at all. Instead of talking about hypothetical situations, he tells this next story as if it were real, as if it would happen one day. Now, personally, I don't doubt that it will happen. Maybe not word for word the way he tells it here, but in general, it has the feeling of something that, that Jesus has planned for the future. In Matthew chapter 25, he, he starts setting the scene in verses 31 to 33. Now feel free to follow along. Matthew 25, 31. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. It's worth noting here that when he speaks these words, Jesus is no longer the triumphant king who was welcomed into the city with a parade and cheering crowds. This story is spoken at a gathering of a small group of Jesus' closest followers in a little garden on a mountain near Jerusalem. If you skip ahead to chapter 26, you see that when he's done telling this story, the very next thing that Jesus will say to his disciples is, remember, very soon they're coming to kill me. Even now, there is a group of people in the city who are plotting and scheming and planning to have Jesus arrested and executed. When Jesus told this story, he looked to be about as defeated as anyone could be. The crowds were gone. His enemies grew bolder. The shadow of the cross was looming. His friends and his followers were afraid. And even among them, one was about to betray him. Yet in this moment of the appearance of defeat, he declared with no hint of doubt or fear, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another. He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Picture that moment, the king on his throne and before him, all the nation. What a moment. Now I have to admit that when I first read this, I was a little confused at the word nations here uh, in English. That definitely means people from different countries and, and the governments of the world. And, and there, there are definitely certain people who want this passage to mean something that it doesn't. We have to be careful. Right? Jesus isn't talking about countries. 
Nowhere does he say that being a citizen of one place or another will ever get you anything. You see, when Jesus told this story, he was talking to a group of people from Judea. Hebrews, Jews, sons of Abraham. So when he says the nations, the word he uses is the word for Gentiles. What he's saying is one day there will be people gathered in front of the king. And it won't just be you lot. It will be all the nations, All people from everywhere. While we're on the subject of getting confused on the detail. There's another group of people mentioned in this scene to whom Jesus refers to as the least of these, my brethren. There are people who are smarter than I am, who have spent much more time studying and thinking and talking about who these people are. And some of those smart people disagree with each other. So I'm not going to pretend to know it now, but basically there's two ideas. Jesus might be talking about a specific group of people followers of Christ and descendants of the Hebrews, a specific group of people who have gone through unimaginable persecution in their lives. He might also be talking in general about all people in need, people who have faced oppression throughout history, the downtrodden, the poor. Either way, the message is the same. The principle by which the king is about to make his decision depends not on who they are, but how they were treated. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Here we have the king on his throne in all his glory. And there are people in front of him and he separates them. He separates them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Notice that he doesn't say sheep from wolves or any sort of predator. Any, this is not the separation of people who followed Jesus and who were openly against Jesus. Sheep and goats are very similar creatures. The difference being that sheep follow the shepherd. But throughout our history and our culture, this passage has caused the word uh, goats, the, the creature to be looked on with disdain. Uh, it, this passage is part of the reason why in, in popular culture, uh, the devil himself has horns and hooves. But these are not the enemies of Christ. These are people on both sides who say they follow Christ, who claim faith. And he separates them. And it says he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Who are these people? He splits them into two groups. How will God divide the people who say they follow him? Now, in human culture, we have a lot of ways of dividing people, don't we? We, we place people into groups based on every conceivable thing we can imagine. What we look like, how we talk, where we come from, our, our physical abilities. Our physical appearance, our personality, our intelligence. But the king draws only one line. He separates people into only two groups. 
Here's how he does it. The king will say to those at his right hand, come, you who are blessed of by, by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Pause for a moment. That's that word stranger is foreigner. Right? The people who are not like us. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The startling thing about this is that Jesus is clearly saying that the mark of authenticity of a Christian faith is not the declaration of faith, not the things we say. It's not knowledge of the Bible, but the concern we show for those in need. The practical demonstration of love is the final proof. What did Jesus say when someone asked him, what is the most important commandment? He says, obviously it's love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But the second command is like it. It's the same love your neighbor as yourself. Because it's easy to say, I love God with all my heart. In in fact, it's so easy. There's no way to show it. There's no way to judge it. It's internal. The love we share for God is, is within ourselves. It's only words unless there is some sort of external action to show it. And so Jesus gives this second commandment. He, or he reminds us of this second commandment. The way we show how much we love God is by showing how much we love his creation. The people who are made in his image. The practical demonstration of love is the final proof. And, and notice that Jesus does not ask anyone to present his case. Right? To, to argue his cause. That's another one of those uh, images that are, is, is in our culture. St. Peter at the pearly gates, right? Standing in line before a man with a, a ledger. Why should you be let in? And in, in, some, in some ideas, we, we have this list of all the things, all the good that we've done in our lives. And there will be preachers who will tell you that you will never have to say all the good things that you've done in your life. You don't have to keep a list. You don't have to earn your way into heaven because all you will have to say is that Jesus is my savior. All you will have to say is Jesus is my savior. But that's wrong too. Because they never have to say that. He, he never, he never asks them to present a case. He asks no questions, requires no evidence. He simply says, you stand over there and you stand over there. And he extends to one of the groups, this invitation. Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. So then he explains the basis of his choice. And he just, he just explains it. He, he notes, hey, when, when you had the opportunity to help me, you did. 
When you had the opportunity to show kindness to me, you did. Nothing more is required. And there's confusion there. He says to me. Now we, we know that he's talking about this group of people. This oppressed and downtrodden group of people. But he says me. He says, you showed it to me. And we understand that. We understand that on a, on a basic level. This weekend starts uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. If you're a basketball fan, you're, you're watching. You, maybe you have your team, your bracket. And if you have a favorite team, you know, some of you are wearing the colors and logo right now. If you have your team, when your team wins, what do you say? You say, we won or we lost. Now, if, you're a, if, if you are an, an alumnus of that, of that university, you might say, oh, I'm a part of that, right? I went there. There may even be a couple of people who, who used to play on those teams. And of course, that's their team. But most of us, we just like the team. We don't play for that team. We don't contribute to that team. We simply identify with that team. We place a part of our identity in the team, in that group. Even though they are not us, we are them. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He says, you did this for me. I place my identity in this group of people the oppressed, the poor, those in need. Nothing more was asked of them, but that they help those in need when the opportunity presents. But for some, it was the opposite story. Right? Later, he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Remember the people who are hearing this. These are people who honestly think that they are in, they are in the, the sheep group. They are in the, the one who's about to be rewarded. They can point with pride to a moment where they made a declaration of faith, a confession. They are perhaps dogmatic about a, a certain creed. They are church members in good standing, but their lack of response to the pleas for help that come at them from every side means they stand revealed as false, inauthentic those who never truly followed Christ at all. Last week, we looked at this moment with Jesus and his disciples where two of them came and asked for positions of honor. And Jesus used that moment to teach a lesson of humility that those who try to be exalted will end up last. And those who willingly place themselves behind will be the first. And I think this story confirms that it reinforces that idea because 
both groups are surprised. Both groups are taken aback. Neither expected this judgment. The reaction is one of stunned surprise. It's clearly evident that both of the groups expected a different, a different basis for judgment. They were, they were being divided. As they were being divided into one group or another, they probably felt that they knew the reason for the choice. Surely the sheep would feel that the basis was that of faith. There would be uh, in their ears, in, in their minds, all of the great and marvelous promises of scripture declaring justification by faith in God alone. Can't you see them just waiting for their turn to step before the King? Each one of them nervously reviewing his testimony, trying to recall the exact wording of the, the great promises on which he would rest his hopes for this moment. But not one is ever given the chance to say a word. The issue is already settled. Each person is simply told to which group he belongs. And they're surprised. He says, the righteous will answer him. Lord, when when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When, When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? So on one hand, the the issue is not one of faith, but on the other hand, it really is an issue of faith. It's not about the the ability to to proclaim or or confess a promise of God. It's, well, the sheep are asked to take their place at the right hand of the throne because all throughout their lives, their genuine faith has been producing something good. Unthinkingly, unconsciously, born out of simply love for Christ. They have been responding to the needs of those around them. They, they kept no records. They expected no praise. For them, it was a privilege. You see, I, I don't set up today caring for the poor as something to be checked off of your checklist. I'm presenting responding to those in need as something that those who follow Christ will unconsciously and unthinkingly do because it's part of who we are. A privilege. They were unaware that they were doing anything unusual simply found a delight in meeting the needs of others. No hardship involved, just a continuing joy to be permitted to minister in Christ's name. But not one single act escaped the eyes of the king. He knew. He knew. There was no need for him to examine them. No need for them to step before him and state their case. They had, as it says, laid up abundant treasure in heaven. But the others are equally surprised. When the king says, "You, you all did this for me and you never did. And the sheep say, Lord, when? When did we ever do this for you? But the other group, they say, when did we not? The king will reply, I'm sorry, 
I missed that bit. The king will reply, truly, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did, when you did this for them, you did it for me. But the other group, they, they say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? When did we not? They may have guessed even more closely than the first group, the true basis for judgment. Very likely they are sure that the basis of this judgment is on good works. They know that God is interested in the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, and they are ready for him. Already they have been making long mental lists of the many times they have ministered to those in need. They can recall detailed descriptions of what they did. They can total up the large sums of money, maybe with income tax receipts. No doubt the amount of money expended is so terribly impressive. It takes a great deal of philanthropy to cure a fortune. They have even put in long hours working for charity, uh, fighting for equality, protesting and fighting and, and giving their voice. But to the self-justifying, the king just says, I say to you, Truly, I say to you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And it's a sobering reminder that good deeds are not always good. The things we do are not taken on face value, but by the value of the motivation behind it. And that is why I don't present today caring for the poor, giving to the needy as a checklist. It is not something that we do to earn God's favor. It should be something that comes naturally. We should not be checking our records and, and running down our ledger to see how much have we given, how much have we done. We should be examining our hearts. How often do I feel like helping? How much thought have I given it? Maybe none, but maybe too much. If it becomes something to work towards, something to hold up and say, look at me, look what I have done. Then we miss the point. Cause that's how, that's how we separate people. That's how we judge people. We judge people by the things that they do. God judges people by their heart. People divide people. God simply wants to know what was your motivation? In James chapter two, there's a very similar piece of advice. I would, I would expect that because James spent a lot of time with Jesus. He picked up a lot of the same, same ideas, same lessons. He says, it doesn't matter how much you say you love God. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you, what you think. 
You can debate your faith all day long. You can speak about God and angels. You can have true heartfelt emotion for those in need. But if you see a brother or sister in need, someone who is cold, someone who is hungry, and all you say is, I feel sorry for you, and I hope for the best for you, you never help them, what good have you done? What good have you done? He just asked the question. He, the answer is sort of rhetorical. No good at all. No good at all. Jesus takes all the people who have claimed to follow him throughout all of history and he separates them. He separates them into the authentic followers and those who merely hold up the statements and the knowledge without ever actually doing any good. And the only line he separates them on is how did you treat those in need? How did you respond? when you were confronted with the opportunity to show love. That's what it comes back to. The opportunity to show love. That's, that's why we exist in this world. Someone at some point in your life demonstrated God's love to you. Told you about Jesus. Brought you in. And now the reason we live is to show that love to others. The greatest commandment. Love God, and with it, love his people. Those are the only two commands that matter. If you get those two right, the rest of them, the rest of them all fall into place. All the laws that were ever written, if everybody could get those two things right, they'd all be unnecessary. No need to have a law against something on the books if no one ever wants to do it. Love God and love his people. The king identifies with the poor. The king, the one in all of his glory, surrounded by angels, sitting on a throne, he says, my people, the ones who are closest to my heart, are the ones who have needs. How did you treat them? I hope one day, not to say for myself that I did well at treating the, the poor with love. I hope one day he will tell me that I did that. Pray. Father, what a privilege it is to come before you today. What an honor to look into your word and, and, and be reminded of your victory, of your glory, be reminded of your people. We only ask today for the right hearts. Give us, give us the heart that has the impulse to do what you would want. Not for our glory, but for yours. It's so difficult 
God, to, to remember to do all the right things. To hold all of the commands in our minds and would you just give us the heart with the right impulse? Even though our first reaction to so many things is, is selfishness. What about me? Lord, would that be the first thing you change in us? That we say, what about them? How can I help? How can I love? God, thank you for the example that you set. The ultimate selfless love of the cross. A gift that we could never match. Thank you for that gift and for the example that it set. Thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. I appreciate that you've joined us today and, and, and come out to, to worship and, and celebrate with us. Uh, thank you for staying connected with us and, and for following along. Uh, we wish you all the best. Have a great week.